Hi everyone, so my name is uh, Dr. Michael Talbot and I'm a senior lecturer in the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East at the University of Greenwich here in London. So I'm going to be very brief in introducing our wonderful guest here at SOAS um, this evening, Dr. Salman Abu Sitta. Now, Dr. Abu Sitta's own life and own story is worthy, I think, of a, a lecture in itself, although of course you can read his wonderful memoirs uh, to find out more about him. And without giving too much away about your age, perhaps you are a survivor um, of the Nakba, um, you are someone who's experienced um, the challenges and traumas of the Palestinian people first hand, you've been educated in, in Cairo and in London, and so the paper about to hear is a, is a reflection in many respects, not just on the past, um, but on the present and perhaps also the future um, of um, the Palestinian people and their national struggle. Um, the subject that we'll be listening to uh, tonight is one that's relatively unknown, um, and um, that's in a large respect because it involves a huge amount of scholarship to make sense of this project of mapping Palestine in the 1870s. And as you will appreciate, as Dr. Abu Sitta speaks in just a few moments, the amount of work, man hours that have gone into producing um, this atlas um, is really remarkable um, in terms of its um, ambition um, and its scope. And what's, what's also important, I think, is as well as being a scholar and, dare I say, a gentleman, is that Dr. Abu Sitta is also an activist. He is someone who doesn't let the past stay in the past, but uses it to try and make a difference for the Palestinian people in the 21st century. So, without further ado, let's give a very warm SOAS welcome to Dr. Salman Abu Thank you very much, Dr. Talbot. Um, thanks again to my old, in, in, in old friendship time, old friend uh, uh, Felicity, um, the cornerstone of Palestine Exploration Fund. Uh, this year, as, as you mentioned, it's 150 years old, and this is remarkable. Also, thanks to Maggie, who organized uh, this event here. And thanks for all of you coming, braving the weather, the cold weather, and also braving the possibility of corona. That's not <laughs> So I hope you're all safe. Um, uh, to many of you, you know most of the things I'm going to say. I'll just add a little pepper and salt to this so that uh, they probably have a certain meaning uh, and certain significance. Uh, Palestine, the Holy Land, uh, has been the subject of interest uh, of the old world for at least 2,000 years. Its inhabitants, the Palestinians, adopted Christianity early on, and then largely some of them converted to Islam in the 7th century. But they remained living in about 2,000 localities in Palestine, and during that long history, armies came and left, and conquerors changed, but the population did not change. They remained in situ for centuries. Um, and I'm sure the immediate history is clear to you, but that was the case until the Nakba of 1948, when the population of Palestine were largely depopulated and their localities and landscape destroyed. But up until the 19th century, there were very few cartographers charting Palestine. We have a notable exception, is the Muslim geographer Muhammad al-Idrisi, born 1100, 
uh, he created the world map and it included Palestine. But in the last 200 years, there was a flurry of activity and interest in Palestine by travelers, by priests, by officers, by surveyors, and by spies, and also by artists. The opening salvo for European interest in Palestine was delivered by Napoleon Bonaparte in, the, in his expedition to Egypt and Palestine in 1798. His 150 savants or scientists produced the voluminous La Description de l'Egypte, which was a wonderful documentation of all aspects of life in Egypt. But he had one officer who accompanied him to Palestine. His name is Colonel Jacotin. Jacotin has been um, adventurous and uh, creative, and he produced for us the first scientifically um, charted map of Palestine. But he followed the army in the coast, so it wasn't complete. The French survey uh, of Egypt was the envy of Europe. And as usual, many people tried to imitate it. The Germans were not far behind. By the mid-19th <coughs> century, maps of Palestine by Kiepert and Van der Veld were very well known in Europe, and they were fairly accurate. But opening the Suez Canal in 1869, which is essentially a French project, that increased the appetite of the British Empire to do the same, or for competition which is very common, of course, as you know. When PF was formed in 1865, they sent a survey mission to Sinai, near the Suez Canal, ostensibly to study the Exodus route, but actually they were trying to find out about the Suez Canal. But they, they uh, PF, sent another mission to Jerusalem in 1867. The survey of Western Palestine as you, many of you know, was carried out in Palestine from 1871 to 1877. A long time, six years. They took the material they created in Palestine to London, and they worked on them for another four years, till finally the product, is called Great Map, was produced in 1888. Now, the area covered by PF survey started from Litani River in Lebanon, and down to Gaza, uh, Wadi, Wadi Gaza, in southern Palestine. So it covered only 15,640 square kilometers, which is today about in relation to Palestine <coughs> mandate period in the 20th century, it covered only 56% of Palestine. But we added to the atlas I'm presenting to you today, the maps by Shoemaker, who produced in 1886 a map extending it from Gaza to the middle of Sinai. So I'm sure many of you know about PF and about survey. I don't want to repeat it here, but my uh, presentation today about our new atlas is based on the maps <coughs> of the survey, its accuracy, its content, that's correct in what way, and so on. So, uh, for almost 30 years, uh, when I first got hold of the maps, memoirs, I was fascinated by the detailed record 
of my country, Palestine. Here it was, a living history museum, beautiful landscape, varied terrain from sea to mountain to river, thousands of names of localities, places and features of all variety. Every stone speaks, every flower, every bird has a different color. Every place is a witness to history. Sad, wonderful, wonderful documentation. But of course, the happy story came to an end. Since 1917, Palestine endured a century of destruction for its people and for its terrain and history and geography. I ask you and ask myself a long time ago, is it worth recovering this erased record? Should we salvage the destroyed heritage? To me, the answer is clear yes. And that is what I have been working on for the last probably 20 years. So the first thing to ask is to ascertain the accuracy of the maps. They were held at the time, the maps that is, as extraordinarily accurate. And they said also at the time that its accuracy has been attested by official experts. Nevertheless, it has been known quite early that the accuracy need to be revised. So over a decade ago, we reported to PF that we found considerable error in the mapping and the location of the maps. The lo localities are displaced in the east up to half kilometer away and in the north direction up to 60 meters. But even with this lack of accuracy, um, we must appreciate the difficult conditions of the survey in the late 19th century. They were traveling on horses, they were using old theodolites, and they are setting, they were setting 192 camps moving from one place to another by diverse survey teams. Under these conditions, I would say the resulting accuracy should be highly commendable. But now we have modern technology. We can do things they were not able to do. So we also knew from PF and through Felicity that these survey teams created what we call field maps. I'm going to refer to them now as traces. These traces, survey teams brought them to London and from that they acquired, they created the great map, what they call great map. So if we compare the original material brought from Palestine to um, the great map, that was the subject of our study. Uh, to do that, there are many things we can do, but at least the, um, the amount of accuracy we can ascertain by, we tried several methods, one of them is to compare a point given by the PF survey in 19th century to the same point which was um, uh, recorded in um, survey of Palestine and the mandate of Palestine, which we refer to in our Atlas of Palestine. So we have two sets of data. One is 
the great map uh, produced in London and the modern Atlas of Palestine, which we have in the 20th century. And we then just selected points of which there is no dispute, like the triangulation points they have used and the triangulation points later. Also, there were in Palestine, as you know, there are many holy sites and they have domes, and then we compared this and that. So we compared um, um, these points up to 313 points. I'm going to select one sheet for you to see how we ascertain the accuracy of that. Uh, here is the map of Palestine, uh, I mean, a PF uh, uh, survey. The brown one is in, in uh, Lebanon, and the rest is in Palestine. The bottom one to the left is Shoemacher map. But now, here is a map which shows you the uh, survey, PF survey, and we selected points to compare with. Now, then what we did was to compare these points with the modern maps of Palestine done during the British mandate. So we can compare one with the other. And then we then selected certain points to compare with. We, uh, the red squares show you the points we match exactly the same. And the blue points are uh, points which have um, left to have a, what we call a residual error. In the end, we have a very careful uh, analysis of these points. The errors have been reduced a great deal, and then they are fairly distributed over the area. So we have confidence in um, the results we have. Um, we, I mentioned that a moment ago we have traces. The traces, again, I remind you, they are the maps brought back by Kitchener and Condor from Palestine and from which they created in London the Great Map. And they are wonderful. These traces have great details. This one is for Akka, Acre, Acre. It's a great detail, beautiful. The problem with these traces, when they took them back to England, they don't know where they are in the globe. You know, we have a globe, the globe is like an orange. And in order to describe the orange on a sheet of paper, you have to flatten it. This is called projection. They don't know how to do the projection, so they did their best. But uh, we also assembled these traces for the first time. Thanks to you, Felicity. She opened boxes for us closed for 150 years. Uh, uh, and uh, we got all these uh, traces, meaning field maps, assembled them, and obviously we covered the whole area of Palestine, of the whole area. And there are black dots which we could not find, but that's not a problem. Then in London, we found another thing. We found that the team, when they came to Palestine, uh, to, to London from Palestine, they created intermediate maps. We call them composite maps. They were experimenting with the material they brought from Palestine and created composite maps, halfway maps, and then in the end they produced the final called Great Map. So we had this wealth of information. These traces uh, we got from PEF, 265 maps. And they have field reports, they wrote what they found, 
they have names and so on. All the books um, which uh, Kitchener and Condor uh, brought back to England were at our disposal to study. Um, now, uh, here map is done by them showing the areas they covered at various years in 1871. You know, they covered, for example, Galilee uh, this uh, year, and then, uh, anyway. So this is the map they produced uh, telling us which areas they surveyed at a certain year uh, during that period. Well, now we are going to go 150 years um, ahead to today. And so we created our new atlas of Palestine based on this information. Uh, we divided it into, uh, we have a scale which is much larger, 25,000. I don't want to bore you about details, but we have it now, instead of 26 sheets, we have it in 500 uh, pages, of course, of a different size. So uh, this is a summary of what this new atlas is. Tells you the size, the scale, uh, tells you the area covered, it tells you uh, what we have added. On the right side here in the slide, you see what we have added. First, every single historical and religious site has been marked by a symbol. And then we also marked water resources, um, historical resources, uh, I mean, and so on. We also uh, did a lot of work correcting the names in both Arabic and English. But we also added in the terrain, the old maps, the great maps, they say when they have a hill, they just had something. We have from NASA the um, terrain as done accurately. So we added the topography of uh, the maps by the new uh, technology and therefore the shading of the mountains and the rivers and so on is according to NASA uh, uh, terrain, it's called DTM. Uh, now, here is uh, the first uh, uh, image you have seen, what was the original um, map from PF, and then superimposed on it our map. And you can see the colors are brighter, and there is a terrain shading, which was not there. The names are given in both Arabic and English after both are corrected. Um, here is another one. That's how the beginning it was. Then now, now it looks like this today. And um, then we, uh, here we have another sample map. Here you can see something I added here. There are new names which we have discovered, not reported by the original survey. So the, the number here, 32 uh, extra names, we found them on the traces, that is in the reports brought by Kitchener to London. Um, and this, here is Gaza, for example, and then you can see the, uh, uh, we, we found extra names uh, from, from that. Okay. Uh, now, uh, I'll, I'll just ask for your indulgence to give you an, a, a, a little taste of the difference between these maps. The first maps you see here is what Kitchener and Condor brought to London. Here is a map uh, showing roads and names and so on. 
um, um, this is what he brought to London. Then somebody here in London was experimenting with these maps. Maybe the name is not right. Maybe the location is not this. So they created composite uh, uh, sheets. Here we show for the same location. Now, slightly different. They are adjusting here, cover some, and it was written zoom. And um, mm. so the, the final sheet printed in London is this one. That's how it's printed. You can see there are some differences. I'm going to explain a bit more of that. Now, our Atlas of Palestine, not this today, that's in, during the mandate, give you the exact um, names which are in detail. And you can see, for example, this blue line is showing a wadi. And if you compare that line by the line given by Kitchener, uh, it's a bit rough. Here it's very detailed correctly. And I don't blame them, but it's a very good indication they even found the wadi. So, so here is a comparison between four stages of work. The first one uh, brought to us by Condor and Kitchener to London. Second one is their experimentation, what to do with it. The third one is the PF survey as published. And the fourth one is the modern atlas uh, for the same location. And to do that, when we experimented with these slides, you can see the top one, uh, the trace for one location. At the bottom, this is how it was published. They have missed one line. There was a road there. They forgot to add it in the finished line. So there is a slight difference. There is also another case. Here, you can see the wadi. These are two maps superimposed on each other. One is the trace as came from Palestine, and the other one is um, uh, the final atlas. You can see the wadis at the bottom have not been reproduced. But these are understandable situations here. In the end, we ended up with about 13,000 names, but the survey only recorded 9,000 names. So we have an extra 4,000 names. Um, and uh, they are, some of them are obtained from traces or composite maps. When I say Palmer book, that was the official list of names given by Cambridge professor of Arabic, E.H. Palmer. We'll speak about Palmer in a moment. So this is in terms of the contribution we have made. Of course, I have not mentioned here today, only the other day we mentioned it, how we corrected the names in English and Arabic. Uh, well, uh, then let us make a commentary on, 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 on this marvelous survey done 150 years ago. The first question we ask, how much did the survey um, done in 1870 complied with the terms of, um, with, the, with, the, with the terms of its mission? Its mission uh, when they are given these, uh, this task to do, they told them, we need you to do archaeology, especially Jerusalem. They told them also, you have to tell us about the manners and customs of the people of the land. And they said, also, we want to know about topography. We want to know about geography, of, uh, geology of Palestine. And we want to know about natural sciences, botany, zoology, meteorology. 
quick remark, there is no question that the information collected in the maps and in the memoirs uh, about these topics are very impressive, very impressive. This applies especially to the to topography. Of course, Jerusalem was on top of the list. Their maps about Palestine have been stood the test uh, of many years until even the Second World War. Nobody could change a word of the Jerusalem map. And archaeology, and archaeology, it's a bit tricky because archaeology required verification by excavation in the ground to see that what you think it is can actually be measured and seen. So um, it wasn't up to scratch. Identification of sites in relation to the Bible was a bit haphazard and more of a wishful thinking than scholarly judgment. This is not my view. It's the view of Wilson, the general editor of the memoirs. He said, Lieutenant Condor's exuberance leads him occasionally into remarks which are scarcely worthy of this publication. Anyway, you can't blame him, he tried his best. But on Palestine's fauna and flora, the record is unequal. It's a beautiful record. We are indebted to Canon Henry Baker Tristram, Tristram for his work. He produced a wonderful volume about the fauna and flora of Palestine. And he left us a beautiful rendering. I give you an example of his rendering. This is a bird in Palestine, a bird. We'll speak about this bird. It's called sunbird. But we Palestinians are so grateful to Canon Tristram because when the settlers came to our country, they claimed this bird to be theirs. You expect they brought it from Russia or Poland, but it's a, it's a Palestine bird. There was a lot of quarrel in international arena. What is the national bird of Palestine? Luckily, in the year 2015, the national authorities recognized this bird, this bird, uh, as Palestine's national bird. So we are grateful to Tristram because this bird escaped Israeli occupation. <laughs> <laughs> but I assume now we should be at liberty to judge PF survey by our state of knowledge and by our accepted standard of humanity. Should we do that? This is, of course, a limitation. You cannot really compare what people thought, you know, 150 years ago by what we think today. But it is useful to examine the case whether the knowledge gained in the 19th century had shaped our present and future for good or for bad. Did it really improve our world or did it actually made us pay a price for it? We'll try to answer this question. The first observation I can make as a Palestinian is the spirit behind the survey. The spirit, as observed, was deeply influenced by the Crusaders who departed from Palestine seven centuries ago. It looks as though the memory lingers on, at least in the minds of the Victorian surveyors. So why do I say that? Because the opening page of the memoirs 
was adorned with the image of a crusader soldier. That's the first image in the memoir. It was not only an image, you can say it's a nice artistic image, but the PF memoirs were full of details about crusaders' ruins, dates, description of derelict place names. The minute search was not necessarily related to the Bible, which is the object of the study, but it was related to the Crusades' failing adventure to conquer Palestine. It was about reviving the dead objects and the dead memories. If there was any doubt about this, it was cleared by PF president at the time, Archbishop of York, William Thompson, in his inaugural speech at PF, he said, the country of Palestine belongs to you and to me. It's essentially ours. It is the land to which we may look upon with as true patriotism as we do to this dear old England, which we love so much. That's what he said. And you say, that was a Victorian time. But it is hardly different from a speech given by Pope Urban II seven centuries earlier, seven yeah, centuries earlier, in 1095. Pope Urban said he was exhorting the quarreled lords of Europe to go to Palestine and to wage a crusader's war. He said, set out on the road to the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Take the land from those wicked people and make it your own. Well, I wondered, who were these wicked people? Is it us, the Palestinians? Perhaps that was the reason, particularly in there's nothing said about the Palestinians in the memoirs. Those living people in Palestine who filled the landscape in over 1,000 localities or two were not mentioned in the memoirs. While the ruins of a single stone were measured, photographed, described in a dozen pages, the publication, the, uh, the, the population of the district in that stone did not merit one paragraph. Well, but there were living creatures mentioned in the memoirs. Who were the living creatures mentioned in the memoirs? They mentioned in the memoirs there were two nat 20 natives carrying our luggage and there were 20 animals carrying the luggage. These are the living creatures mentioned that. But the people were very much alive. In July 1875, Condor and Kitchener pitched their tents near Safad and started surveying the people of Safad when they got suspicious. Who are these foreigners coming surveying our land, charting our land? They could be crusaders coming back. So there was a quarrel between them, and in the end, it turned into scuffle, and Kinchener ended with a stone in his, hit his head, he was bleeding in the head, and Condor was put out of action, and the survey was stopped for almost a year. So there were yeah, some kind of reaction to that. But then we come to the story, interesting or sad if you like, about somebody in the survey. 
Under the Arabic nomenclature, the memoirs mentioned that the collection and writing of Arabic names was carried out by an Arab scribe, just the word Arab scribe, or a native scribe. So I was curious about this man. Who is this man who collected the Arabic names of the survey? I saw and scanned many of these name books in your archives, and I looked at the name. The Arabic names are very well written. Of course, the English names are added by the English surveyor after the, this native scribe put the Arabic names. His writing is very nice. Then I was really concerned, I mean, I really wanted to know more about him. I searched for him everywhere, and I found a thesis about him in Damascus University, and I found actually a copy of his manuscripts in Jordan. And I looked at this, my goodness, he has same handwriting. This man is writing very well, and this is same handwriting. And it turned out that not only he was writing the expedition trips and what they have done and so on, but actually he was drawing the sketches um, which appeared in the survey. He did these sketches. A remarkable man. Then we found that his name is Nu'man, son of Abdu, son of Yusuf, son of Nicola, Al-Kibrani, and Qasatli, born in Damascus, 1854. He was an accomplished geographer. He described the same survey sites in the memoirs uh, by his own handwriting, and he himself wrote several books. This is one of them about the survey, where he went with Condor and Kitchener in Jerusalem, in, in uh, Al-Khalil, Hebron, and in Damascus. And he was an accomplished, actually, he has many talents. He was a novelist and a poet. And he, in the end of his life, he became a successful businessman. So I just thought, is that enough recognition for the native scribe? Native scribe deserves no mention. But we, can, we cannot really judge these things now, but at least we know them. In a brighter note, the biblical study has a great benefit for the Christian history of Palestine. Thanks to PEF, we know of the Palestinian Byzantine bishop, Eusebius, who was living in Caesarea. He wrote a book in the year 313, only three digits, 313, 300 years after Christ. And in this book, he mentioned the names of localities in Palestine and the distance between them to help the pilgrims who uh, are uh, going, uh, were going to Jerusalem. Now, thanks to PEF, they translated this work from Greek and Latin uh, to English. We took that book and we listed the names of localities which he mentioned and compared them with our mod modern Atlas of Palestine. Is there any similarity? Is there any uh, recognition of the location? This is what we found. We, we were able to locate 139 village names 
and 50 place names from the year, from 17 centuries earlier, with our modern Atlas of Palestine. And the names are very much the same, and they could be sometimes slightly phonetically different, but basically they are the same. One remarkable about this picture, this map, is that Jesus Christ could have actually walked in these streets. Very likely he had walked in this. But their record is kept for 17 centuries. For 17 centuries. Till when? Till they were destroyed by Israel in 1948. They destroyed all these 2,000-year-old villages in which Jesus Christ walked, and they are destroyed today. Of course, you don't have to be a Palestinian to remember that or to note that this is a huge loss to the history of humanity. Now, we ask another question. This survey, who benefited from it actually then? The PF publications um, say that the survey was a story of national pride, religious devotion, military strategy, financial scheming, and personal ambition. Actually, uh, the evangelists in London and the clergymen wanted this survey to be done. They were the well-known public players of that. But the elephant in the room, which was not mentioned, was the military agenda of the survey. PF was chronically short of money. The Ministry of War came to its help at a price. They provided the survey officers, they provided the money, and later, actually, the Ministry of War took over the work of uh, the PF, um, and they produced a lot of military work. So the military agenda Actually, it was prominent from the beginning because we have here Wilson, the editor, he says that um, the, uh, the, the map will be of great importance as a military map should Palestine ever be the scene of military operations. He wrote that 40 years before the war came to Palestine. And this understanding uh, preceded carrying out the survey of Palestine because in 1869, as I mentioned before, PF sent a Sinai expedition near Suez Canal. It was headed by our friend, Cambridge professor of Arabic, E.H. Palmer. He is Orientalist. He returned to Sinai in 1882. Why? It was concurrent with the British invasion of Egypt. Due to his knowledge of Arabic and of Sinai tribal sheikhs, he was tasked with the mission to gain the Sheikh's support for the British invasion of Palestine. Told them, don't destroy Suez Canal. We are friends with you. He went there to Sinai. He was a persuasive man, knows Arabic, but his persuasion was helped by carrying bags of gold. <laughs> but unfortunately, his mission was cut short because he was killed and the gold bags were lost. That was first prototype of Lawrence of Arabia. Here we have a young 22-year-old officer by the name of Kitchener, <coughs> brilliant man. He was second in command to Condor, 
and he did geological survey with Hull later on in Garandal and Wadi Araba and in Sinai. And he has a meteoric rise in his position. He became the chief commander, the Sirdar of the Egyptian army, and then he became minister of war for Britain, but he drowned in 1916. Here we have another brilliant example of British survey officers. I really admire them for their work, not so much for the object of the survey. Survey of Western Palestine was completed in 1914, just before First World War, by whom? Captain Stuart Newcomb. And his map was a military map of Sinai and Southern Palestine from Gaza to Umrashash, what they call now Elat. It was so detailed that the roads were marked whether they are suitable for vehicles or animals to go. Also, he listed all the wells, whether the water there is potable or not. Um, uh, but this brilliant man, this uh, survey officer, uh, in 1914 was southern Palestine. Lo and behold, suddenly he pops up in the north of Palestine, nine years later. What is he doing in North Palestine? He was charting the boundary between the British-mandated Palestine and the French-mandated Lebanon. So he is a very useful man. Uh, a famous T. Lawrence of Arabia um, started his military career with an intelligence operation uh, named in pursuit of wilderness, wilderness of Zin. Then he went out, uh, then he went on to carry the famous adventures in Jordan as the uncrowned king of Arabia. His main achievement was the destruction of the Hejaz railway line built by, by, built to carry pilgrims from Damascus to Medina and financed by donations from Muslims around the world. Shoemaker, the one I showed his map at the bottom of my page, um, was also working for PF. He was residing in Haifa, and he reported on the Hejaz railway plans, and he charted a detailed map of the Golan Heights. So all PF work was made it easy for Alimbi to conquer Palestine in 1917. All the battle maps of Alimbi has been based to some, to a large extent, uh, on PF maps. Here is one map. Here is PF map of Gaza, which was under attack in 1917. And here is the military map, which was created to bombard Gaza. They bombard Gaza, the British, so many times, and they failed twice to conquer. They were defeated twice at the gates of Gaza. Gaza seemed to have a long history of resistance. Now, they tried third time. They tried third time. But instead of attacking Gaza directly, they made a route, a detour route, go east to Beersheba to attack it from an expected source. Um, while they were uh, attacking Gaza and failed, they resorted to something you today will find abhorrent. They bombed Gaza, 1,400 bombs with poison gas. 
here is the British training for the poison gas. And even with these 400 canisters of poison gas in Gaza, they could not take it. So again, as I said, they thought of another way. Going east, pretending you'll attack Gaza third time, going east and then attacking Beersheba uh, from, uh, uh, from the east. Where they started, they started here, in my land. This is LMB map called Third Battle. And if you look carefully, you will see that says Abu Sita. My mother was a witness to this um, trip, these troops coming from my land, going east to Beersheba to attack it. This is a life story, family story, right? And they reached Gaza, uh, Beersheba, on the first, first 31st of October, 1917. On Wednesday at 6.30 p.m., they broke the defenses of Beersheba and conquered Beersheba. It was the first military, British military um, uh, victory in this. They failed in Gallipoli in Turkey. They failed in Iraq in al -Kut. And for them, in 1917, that was the first victory to get Beersheba. So what happened? What did they do with this victory? As I said, they did that 31st of October at night. In the morning, LMB sent a letter, a telegram, of course, to London saying it was 1st of November. They, we took, we took um, Beersheba, um, Jerusalem will be your Christmas present. Balfour received that letter in his office. He opened the drawer and got a document. He already agreed secretly with the European uh, Jewish uh, leaders and he declared Balfour Declaration on 2nd of November. And 400 years from that date, the area has not seen any peace. It was always bloodshed, always bloodshed. We then have another question. What happened to Palestine from that date? Did PF survey help the colonization of Palestine or not? This map here is taken directly from PF survey. All the black dots you have show places mentioned in the um, survey. All these places are named catalogs. The thousand, 13,000 names are shown here. You will notice something about this map. You see the hilly areas of Palestine, which today they call it the West Bank, is densely populated. Galilee in the north is also densely populated. But you see in the coastline, there are a bit of white areas, a little spacing between the villages. And that is where the settlers, now shown in blue, came to Palestine. They came to the shores of Palestine and built settlements there, mostly under the British protection. And some of them came actually in smuggler ships at night. They're not all legal. Uh, uh, immigrants. So 
they filled that spaces and I now enlarge that piece. The black dots are Palestinian localities. The, um, um, uh, the blue square in the end is Jaffa. And these little settlements, they are shown here dots, but they are very small. Um, there was a suburb of Jaffa called Tel Aviv. It was built as a suburb of Tel Aviv, and now you know what it is. So this colonization has been based on this. They made use of it. But actually, the greater part of the colonization took during the British Mandate. Then, after 1948, it took big proportions, taking over 80% of Palestine. Here is a map which is very significant and very very rarely shown to you. This shows the situation in six months from 1st of April 1948 till the date uh, Israel was announced on 14th of May. All the red areas show you the Zionist invasion of Palestine. I say the Zionist invasion of Palestine. It was done by 120,000 um, soldiers, mostly veterans from World War II. They were organized in nine brigades and they were covering all areas of Palestine. They had 31 military operations to take over. And in the end, these villages uh, in this area, there were 220 villages became refugees before the British left Palestine and before Israel was formed. So this has taken place. All the um, uh, blue dots are villages which have been depopulated. Now, what is the end of this period, the six-week period? The end was 14 May 1948. Two things happened on that date. Number one, Ben-Gurion declared his state after he expelled half the refugees. Second one, on that date, my land was attacked by 24 armored vehicles and our houses were burnt and demolished. Uh, the father, my father built a school, 1920s were destroyed. And then on that date, we all our existence was wiped out and I became a refugee on that date. 14th of May 1948. It's the same date when Ben-Gurion uh, announced his uh, state. So if we go back to 1870, we see um, the Palestine which is recorded by the PF survey. And then in 1948, another milestone, the Nakba took place which is still going on. But I have faith that justice will be restored. I have faith which propelled me to make this atlas of, of 1871, 150 years ago, to show ourselves and the world that there was a Palestine vibrant and full of its people, and that their aim is and will be for always to restore that to its people, to live in peace, in freedom, 
in justice, in joy, and happiness, just as P.F. Servers found it in 1871. All my hope is that with this record kept for future generations, that this situation, when justice is restored, will not be too far in coming. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Abbasita, for this um, wonderfully engaging and important uh, talk. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of questions. I was dreading the, um, the, the denouement, the military uh, uh, thing. Uh, you probably tell from my Scottish accent that uh, I know very well the aim of these maps that were used by the English state for the Highland massacres in Glencoe, right? So I was expecting that. But how did the Zionists get hold of these maps? Okay. Hmm? How did the Zionists get hold of the maps? Oh, uh, the, uh, we agreed to The PF maps are uh, published, available, published in 1888. So they studied them. I, I just wanted to say one thing. Um, I know I didn't mention it here. What struck me when I looked at these maps over some years is that in the 19th century, there was an anthology, there was sort of a, that Palestine is a land without people. And I was very surprised. How could they say land without people? There are 2,000 localities, there are 14,000 names, and so on. And then the Zionist Commission in the Peace Conference in 1919 presented to the colonial powers a map showing Palestine hatched like this and say, Pasture for nomads. Pasture for nomads. And I am, you know, I, really, it boggles your mind. Maybe Lawrence of Arabia was sitting there in the map, and the uh, kitchen may be there, and so on. How could they say that? And the French were not also stupid. The French sent a man called Gorin, Victor Gorin. He spent many years in Palestine. He produced eight volumes about every village in Palestine. So they knew. And how come they accept? the notion of the Zionists that Palestine is a land without people. And it hit me in the head. They knew it was a myth, but it, for them it was not a myth. It was a plan to make Palestine a land without people. This is the blueprint for a Nakba. They really wanted to create a Palestine without its people. The ideology of Zionists until today, no Palestinians and we, we need their land. Take the land and no people. So they wanted, to, that was a plan, not just a myth. Um, and uh, we, we see this happening every day. Thank you, Dr. Sita, for this brilliant lecture. I have two quick questions. The first is, I've heard quite a bit about potential French plans, and I have no idea if this is true, of potentially also creating some form of uh, Jewish state in Palestine in the mid-19th uh, century. I'm curious if there's any historical backing to that and if those maps and the role of the French was um, uh, part of that. And the second question I had, I want to take advantage of your presence to ask you about the right, right of return because you spoke about the future and a few, I know you've done important work about the uh, feasibility of right of return because one of the arguments that Zionists try to make is that it's not feasible anymore, it's something of the past, we have to get over it. 
So can you please comment on that? Um, about uh, um, the French plan, there are some records, but I don't think they have been verified, that Napoleon, in order to create an empire in the, in the East, uh, just to tease the British and to uh, control the uh, communication lines, he uh, thought uh, that it's a good thing to say um, to the Jews of Europe, we are going to create for you uh, a country where you come back to. But I, I have not seen any reliable plan that he has a deliber deliberate and carefully constructed plan uh, to do that. Uh, the British has that, uh, as we all know, I mean, it's now common knowledge. Um, Balfour, Balfour was anti-Semite. Um, in 1906, he created the Aliens Act, uh, stopping the uh, Jews from Europe to come to England. Uh, and he was dead against that. But then it came to him, look, here we have a solution. We get rid of the Jews not to come to England, send them to Palestine, and there we create from them a power which will help us to protect the Suez Canal. So um, uh, now, now uh, the well-known uh, historian, Elan Pape, he elaborated on that a lot. He wrote about it in detail. Now, about the right of return. Well, first of all, when there is a crime committed, then you have to remedy the situation. If someone steals your house, then you say, give me the house back. If someone killed your family, you should go to International Criminal Court. So there is no crime without remedy, without solution. You cannot say, he killed your family and he took your house. Now you have to learn how to live with it. <laughs> this has never happened anywhere. In history, you can do that temporarily because you have a superior force. But in the long run, why, why there was Second World War? because European countries did not want crimes to be committed and people take over. Why did they object to Hitler taking uh, Germany? I mean, uh, France. Uh, they, they occupied France. They occupied other countries and so on. Why did they oppose Napoleon in, 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 in attacking uh, Russia? Because you, you say crime cannot be the rule. Cannot be the rule. You can impose that for a limited time, but it's not the rule. Now, this is the first part of the question. Second part, we have done a lot of work. We have shown that the right of return is sacred to all Palestinians. They will never give up that. In 1948, we were 1.7 million people. Today, we are 13 million, half of them living on Palestine, and the other half around it. That's sacred to us, all of it. Secondly, it is uh, legal by every single line in international law. The um, right of return, Resolution 194, is the longest attested, firm resolution in the UN history. There is not a single resolution more than that. It's attested, affirmed all this time. The third thing we say it's feasible, because we did a study for every village land in Palestine. We did that many times. We knew who were living there, Palestinians, and now where they are in which refugee camp, and their ages, their names, and so on. On the other hand, 
we knew who were the Jews who came to replace them. Are they uh, Arab Jews? Are they Russians? Are they um, uh, Ashkenazis? And so on. And then we found something uh, uh, that was 15 years ago, but it was very strange for most people um, that 87% of Jews live in 12% of Palestine, of Israel. And who lives in the vast area? Kibbutz. Kibbutz and the army. The kibbutz are 1% to 2% of the population, and the army control this because they have um, factories, training, right, and so on. And then we found that 270 village lands today, they have no Jews at all. And the other, about 200 and so on, huh, they have very few Jews. We could live kibbutz, kibbutz. Look, look at my case. In my case, in my land, which is 50,000 dunums, there is one place which belongs to my father's land called Nerim. The members of Nerim are 173 working members. They have children, but 173. Abu Sita family, who are refugees, one kilometer away in Gaza Strip, are 10,000. Why is that? I mean, Gaza is crowded country, crowded place. Why? Because all the population in the southern half of Palestine, 50%, 50% of Palestine, have been crammed into 1% of Palestine, which is Gaza Strip. Their density is 7,000 persons per square kilometer. And the settlers in their land, one kilometer away, at a density of seven persons. 7,000 here, seven persons here. What kind of justice is that? How long can you live with that? So not only it's legal and sacred, it's also inevitable. Thank you. You? <laughs> Hello. Um, thank you again for a really fantastic talk. It was worth hearing twice. It really was. And um, I would just like to ask you, you've been working on the survey of Western Palestine for the best part of 20 years as a cartographer yourself, as, a, as, as um, an academic, cataloguing the, um, the mapping of Palestine. And you mentioned in your talk, you said, you know, who has this benefited, this project? Hmm. And I wondered, though, your project, your re, um, reconfiguring of the atlas, what do you hope this is going to achieve? Rather than just a, an interesting cartographic exercise, but you know, what's your hope for this publication? Your your huge work. Thank you twice. <laughs> uh, the first one is your question because I was always thinking of you that you will be upset with me when I criticize certain things and so on. Uh, but thank you also for bringing that up. I mean, the aim of my lecture today, which I hope I got across, is that. When we think of Palestine, which should have justice and freedom, we are really recreating something which was there. And that we are grateful to PEF to tell us these names and places and maps. I mean, what we are doing now is simply saying, thank you, survey, PEF survey. You have confirmed to the world what we always told you, there were people here, and they lived here, and so on. And so 
uh, I, uh, I did not make it clear here. I wanted young people, young generation, young generation to know that um, this treasure of information is not lost when you reproduce it in a new atlas. One thing makes me sad that the generation of archaeologists who, who have been uh, working on archaeology, uh, like uh, Blakely and people like that, he's more knowledgeable, but the destruction of Palestine obliterated, obliterated the history of archaeology. It became amnesia. There is amnesia. Who, who in the young archaeologists would know where Tel Hesi is? It's in our maps, but it's erased from Israeli maps. Who would know Tel Sultan, which Dame uh, Margaret Kithian, uh, uh, Kenyon wrote, uh, wrote about and discovered, right? The, the, it is erased from, from uh, uh, the maps of Israel. Uh, um, the, the, who would know where Tel Jamma, where Tel Farah is, uh, which are found in here, where the Australians found the Byzantine churches of the fourth century? The young architects today would be at a loss to know the whole history of 200 years of archaeology has been obliterated and it, uh, they would have an amnesia. He need so many things. All the names are Israeli. We would not know where they are. So this is one advantage of uh, publishing again the survey of Western Palestine. changing the narrative of Nakba from an event in 48 to a process that preceded 48 and now continues to this day. Thank you very much. Fantastic lecture. Uh, it's, my question is this, that part of the Zionist myth narrative that all Jews in the Holy Land in Palestine were exiled from the land and that they're therefore you know, returning and is some sort of divine retro, you know, recognition for, for the right to be there. But um, Shlomo Sand, in his book, The Invention of the Jewish People, makes it clear that, that that narrative is not true, and it's now well known that it's not the case that all the Jews were driven out of Palestine. I wonder if uh, your mapping and the, the studies of it have actually shown that it's not the case, that actually what happened to those people is that they assimilated in other ways into, into the land of Palestine. As um, Shlomo Sand says, if there's one group of people that can legitimately claim to descend from the people that lived in Palestine, those years ago, it is the Palestinians, and I think it's one of the really most tragic and crazy ironies is that the, pe the people that are being persecuted are probably the descendants of people that lived in that land all those years ago. One of the good things about uh, uh, being academic or scientifically based uh, research, it's uh, very difficult uh, to refute it. If you tell an opinion, if you say you're good or bad or uh, politics, uh, people can dispute everything uh, you say. But if you say this location is here and another location is 10 kilometers away, um, very difficult. Um, since the first atlas, I mean, this is the fifth atlas, Benny Moritz wrote a very long review of my first atlas, the big one. <laughs> and he spent a lot of time, had a team of young researchers taking out everything, you know, where is this number from? He failed to find anything wrong. He only said that 
Oh, the Jews in Palestine, you said they were 12,000. They are actually 14,000. Uh, and, and I say, fine, that's fine. But his main comment, and you can read it, his main comment, oh, Abu Sitta is trying to reconstruct Palestine. I mean, his, uh, his complaint is that we want to preserve Palestine and reconstruct it. So this is one comment. That's the value, and I think now in the age we are in, you know, the media and so on, you have to be factual. You have to tell the truth. Uh, opinions are your own. You wear a red shirt or blue shirt, that's your reason. But if you say, I'm wearing a shirt, and this is a fact. And it's very difficult for your adversaries to dispute it if they have ulterior motives. Um, the the Nakba, I mean, one of the objectives uh, of, of this, uh, as I said, is to say that there were people here. I mean, I, I showed you um, the Bishop of Caesarea in the year 313, 17th century ago. He's speaking about my villages, my land. The same way as we are talking about the uh, maps of, of today, if they were um, uh, at least in the maps. So we have, I, I tell you, I don't think many countries in the world uh, are well documented as Palestine for many reasons. I mean, one, one thing I can say without fear of contradiction that Jer Jerusalem is Palestinian longer than London is English. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, so, uh, yeah, anyway. the, the problem is that, of course, you know, it's Im Im imperialism and colonialism and uh, uh, which are ganging against us, but the majority of the world who have actually been liberated uh, colonies are on our side, only um, on the Trump and company. Who, who, who inherited Balfour, uh, but that could not last. Uh, the idea that they were there and they're retaining, I'm glad Shlomo San has uh, proven uh, this to be useless argument. No, uh, I have two answers to this. The first one is that all the world has been, uh, you know, people lived in different places and so on. So it's absolutely absurd to say whether the Romans are paving the road here to Oxford or is it the English or the Normans or something. And it, it has no logic. And it has actually never been a part of international law. Since the First World War, the world is uh, accepting the people who uh, are living there uh, in their situation. But I have another answer to this question. They say they have been there 2,000 years ago, and then it came to their mind, let's go back home, home. Well, I say, we never left. It's up to you, but we never left. We never left. So you left, it's your problem, but we never left. We are still here, right, even today. I have uh, used your maps to show Palestinian refugees uh, the villages that they will return to someday. Um, and uh, they, they're so useful. And I was just wondering what's next for uh, the Palestine Land Society? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, question at the back. Yeah. So 
when did the new Gaza and West Bank uh, Palestine map started, so like we saw the UN resolution <coughs> one nine one eight one. So, if we see this map since like two thousand years, <coughs> when did the new concept of Gaza and West Bank started? Thank you. Um, how did the Ottomans or the authorities at the time deal with this extensive mapping of <coughs> the land they controlled? What next for Palestinian society? Yes. Uh, we have endless list of programs, and we actually are working out uh, um, uh, the population, how they change, and and what can be done, and uh, who owns what. And uh, uh, one good thing for us that no Israeli today, with a few exceptions, have a title deed of a land he takes from Palestinians. It's all in the hands of the government. Israel Land Administration taking care of that, and it's renting it to uh, kibbutz and so on. So there is no title deed for any, with a few exceptions, all right? So that, that, that makes it easy. But we actually are not only just dreaming of returning, we'll see how many refugees are in this place, and we're creating maps now, how long will it take them to go, and even how many buses they need, and with the roads, and we, uh, um, uh, have uh, uh, an annual uh, competition, architecture competition. Um, you are welcome to attend in 6th of September of each year. Well, we invited this year, we have 10 universities participating with about 40 students. And these students, architecture students, in their graduation year, we give them a list of, selected list of Palestinian villages, we give them data about this village and we tell them, now this is your village, your grandfather village, it's your project to rebuild it. So they actually design the village and all the facilities and and uh, we have prizes uh, for the winners and the jury for the winners of each year, how to reconstruct or to rebuild uh, reconstruction of your villages. Uh, are very distinguished architects. Uh, they are all members of RIBA, and some are from various parts of, of Europe. Every year, we receive the uh, submissions um, where the young students are designing the village of their origin. So that's one uh, other way. The, when you actually look on that, I say on all our work that there is no logical, I mean logistic, no logistic, no logistic reason, no legal reason, no geographical reason, no demographic reason, uh, no um, uh, owner property reason that Palestinians cannot return, except one thing, that Zionism and racism and apartheid, which is supported by the United States. Now, the question is, how long will that continue? I'm sure it has limited life. Um, uh, the question was about the origin of the West Bank Gaza maps. When did they? When did it start when being divided into the West Bank and Gaza? When the United Nations had the resolution one eight one, on what base they put Gaza and West Bank map for Palestinians and there is for Israelis? Like six percent. Uh, it's very big one. But you are talking about um, the partition plan. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but partition plan has no legal value. It is not part of international law. It has no legal value whatsoever. It is, was a suggestion by the United Nations to solve the dispute between two parties. 
If you look at the case of Bosnia, the United Nations suggested not one, five plans, till finally they agreed to one. And that was an agreement between two indigenous people of Bosnia. Here, the situation is between indigenous people and people who came from smuggler ships to Palestine. So it's not the same. Now, I'll tell you something else also not mentioned. Israel says in its uh, declaration of independence that we rely on uh, resolution, uh, partition resolution. Check your facts. The United Nations itself dropped the partition plan in March 1948. They said, it seems our suggestion for reconciliation is not workable without much bloodshed. And they dropped it. And they dropped it. And I showed you here a map. When Ben-Gurion ordered his Haganah to take over Palestine in what I call the Zionist invasion, in 1st of April, it was a response to that. He says, I'm going to take over Palestine before the United Nations actually declare the partition plan and they actually adopted a new scheme that Palestine should be um, under UN trusteeship. They removed Britain and they put UN trusteeship. And um, that's why he wanted to preempt this situation by taking over uh, Palestine, depopulating 220 villages, making up half the refugees today, before there was something called Israel. And before his benefactors, the British, left, they have not left. They are supposed to protect Palestinians, but they did not. So the fact that a place falls in this and that, I can give you so many maps where people try to cut Palestine into series. Take Trump uh, joke, the Trump deception of the century. I worked out the plans. Uh, he, he did. I worked out the plans. Uh, um, and, you know, not only, not only it is farcical, but, I mean, it's Swiss cheese. You make a country of Palestine, Swiss cheese, Bantustan, controlled by them. But there is a deception in that. And I, I just would like to tell you two things we find. When he said that the village, Palestinian villages in Israel will be annexed to uh, to the new state of Palestine, he forgot to mention, or he did not mention, that their land will be taken by Israel, stays there. So he wanted to take the people out of their houses and put them in Palestine and take their land, the village land, to remain in Israel. Yeah? You cannot, in this uh, called uh, state of Palestine, cannot walk more than 10 kilometers without meeting checkpoints and um, Enclaves. They have 15 enclaves of Israeli um, settlements inside them. It, it, it just uh, just uh, flies. And I mean, I'm amazed that wise men tried to persuade Balfour in 1917 uh, with the his declaration. Today they don't need that. They don't need to persuade anybody and whisper here, make conspiracy, make presentation. They are now Kushner sitting in the White House. And he writes things and say, Trump, please sign here. Never have it before. The Zionist contingent is running the White House, sitting in it. I mean, before they were persuading people by pressure, by, by lobbying, by money, by this. Now they don't need, they just sit there.
But what did the Ottomans think about the mapping project? What was their response to it? Yes, yeah, I, I'm really surprised. I don't know the answer to this one, except, um, yeah? I can help. <laughs> yes, you can help. Yes, yes, go it's, ahead. Um, the, I mean, all the, all the mapping was done with the consent of Constantinople. Um, now, Constantinople is a long way from Jerusalem and from Akka and so on. Um, but every um, project had to have essentially a visa, a firman, to be carried out. And the publication, of course, went to the Sultan as well. So this interesting thing about the military aspect, we have to understand that it was, it was a publication, it was there, and the Ottomans also had access to it. I think they wanted it to happen because they knew at this stage they didn't really understand this part of their empire very well and they needed more information as well. So it's to their benefit. Too. Thank you, thank you very much. This is a correct explanation, I think. <laughs> On that note, let's give Dr. Abusita another warm round of applause.